Well, good morning. If you, uh, we're going we're gonna to dive right into our text today. Uh, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We are going to be in Luke, uh, a little bit early there, Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Uh, we are getting towards the end of our Luke series. In case you haven't figured it out, the pathway of Luke ends with the triumphal entry in the gospel, which will take us to Easter. So it's a nice little clean packaged journey. So if you're like, when are we ever going to be done with Luke? Well, we're going to be done with the gospel when the gospel gets preached on Easter Sunday, and then we'll, we'll talk about some other things. Amen. <clears throat> Um, so 17, uh, just to give you a little bit of context before we dive in and read, uh, we are entering a kind of a, a, a new phase of Jesus' ministry, uh, not fully, but in, in many respects. So uh, if we get to the end of 16, we, we see that Jesus has been dealing a lot with the religious leaders and the Pharisees and a lot of very public ministry. He's been with the crowds and, and those who are in charge and the, the elites, and he's kind of shown them up, and he's talked a lot about things like hypocrisy or, or money, or, you know, not storing up treasures and, and, and all those kinds of things. Um, when we get to 17, the, certainly our text today uh, is, is a switch from that to, to a time where he talks a lot more to his, uh, I guess, more inner circles, his disciples or, or closer followers. That's not to say that in the next few chapters we won't see him engage with with public and religious leaders. He never kind of completely shies away until we get to things like the, the Last Supper and the time before his arrest. But he definitely has times where he kind of pulls in his inner circle and he's saying things that aren't meant to teach the masses or, or those that are like the Pharisees and Sadducees and other, and other leaders, but specifically the disciples. So when we read passages like 17, 1 through 10, they were geared to them. And therefore, as Christians, as followers of Christ, they are kind of specifically geared to us as well. Right? They're kind of the lessons for those who are in, in the club already, so to speak. Right? And so let's, let's have that in mind. Uh, we'll read through it, and then we'll kind of we'll unpack it verse by verse, because this is a seeming collection of random thoughts uh, that, that all kind of flow together, but we've got to do a little bit of legwork to get there. So if we want to stand, uh, a reminder, if you're new, we, we stand only for the reading of God's word, uh, not my own words, just as a reverence and, and a love and a respect for, for the fact that the word is holy and living and breathing. Amen? Let's read together, uh, Luke. Oh, man, I am, I, am, I am screwing up. I'm sorry, Rogan, it's not your fault, it's mine. Oh, in case you're ever wondering, 99% of the time, if something goes wrong, it's not their fault, it's mine. So don't glare at them on your way out. Chances are I did it. <laughs> right. Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him to have, or if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all you were commanded to say, or all you have commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. 
the word of the Lord. Have a seat. <sighs> so, uh, this is a bit of an intense passage, and it's, it seemingly has a, a couple different things going on. So we're going to kind of do it verse by verse, and we're going to leave verses up as we, as we teach, so you can kind of reference uh, the bits and pieces as we go. So we really have kind of a 1 through 2, 3 to 4, 5 to 6, and then 7 to 10 as kind of these four different thoughts that seem to maybe not go so well together, but they, they really do, right? And so Jesus opens with this statement where he proclaims that temptation to sin is sure to come, right? A lot of this temptation to sin is, is a word that's debated. It comes from the Greek scandalon, where we get the words like scandal or scandalous, right? It doesn't in this case mean necessarily scandalous, but we get that, that same root word. Uh, and it's translated a whole bunch of different ways if we look at different uh, versions of, of the Bible. In most of them, it's, it's not translated as temptation to sin, which is accurate. It's a good, it's a good translation. Um, but a lot of times it says stumbling block. Right? So it'll say something along the lines of, and Jesus, he said to his disciples, stumbling blocks are sure to come, or stumbling blocks in your faith, or things that will cause you to stumble in your faith are sure to come. Right? So the sense of the meaning here is things that can cause us to fall into sin or take us away from the Lord are, are certain to come. Right? Jesus is saying that it's inevitable that we will have things in life come towards us, come at us from all kinds of directions that will cause us to sin in this world. Right? So what we believe as, as followers of Christ, we believe that we are sinners. We don't just commit sins. It's not something that you could choose to turn off, right? You can choose to stop sinning on a case-by-case -case basis. You can say, I will not commit this sin, and say, I, I succeeded at not committing this sin. But you can't stop sinning altogether. It's, it's a condition of the heart, and it's, it's just a part of the nature of who we are in this world apart from Christ's intervention and second coming, right? So he's, he's saying, look, there's, there's no way you're going to avoid this. Sin is a reality, and the temptations for you to fall into sin are, are, are certain. They are going to come. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when, right? There's stuff all over the world, both internal to you and your heart and external of other people and the world we live in and the, the values that it holds and the directions that you get pulled, and they are going to cause you to fall from God at times. They're going to make you sin. It's just the way it is. You can't avoid it, right? And so Jesus starts on a really uplifting, positive note when he gets into the, the teaching of just the disciples, right? This is the way you want a Jesus teaching to start. It's a good promising. This is going to be fun, right? But then he gives us the, the part of the phrase that really is the scary one, right? He says, that the stumbling blocks, they are inevitable, but woe to the one through whom they come. In other words, he's, he's pronouncing a woe, a, a curse, a bad things are going to happen. Like, you do not want to be the person through whom the stumbling block comes to another. Okay. So he's saying on the one hand, listen, he, he's not rebuking the people who are doing the sinning. He's rebuking the people who helped put a stumbling block in the, in the way of someone that caused them to sin. We, uh, we, my, my son is in this phase now where he, you know, he'll, he'll do things that a typical boy does that I, we're not going to judge him for that are just, just silly things. He doesn't listen all the time. That's just part of being a, a four-year-old. But one of the things he's now doing is he ch he's trying to convince our two-year-old daughter to do things they should, she shouldn't do. <laughs> you know, so he'll be, like, he'll be like, Aaron, hit the spoon on the wall. Or Aaron, run away. Or Aaron, jump off the couch. You know, like, and so we've started to have to have conversations of, look, if she does a thing that's wrong because you told her to, 
you're going to go to timeout. And her too, because she did the thing, right? But like, we're going to hold you responsible for the things that you are causing intentionally. You're putting, a, you're putting a stumbling block in the way of her behavior, right? She would be way better behaved if it weren't for the, you know, the times that you come in and try to like, I mean, and he is like, it's like devil's advocate. I can see the little devil on the shoulder be like, Aaron, be really funny if you threw that food, you know, like do it, throw the food, right? And so, and so he, there's a punishment that goes to him, even though he didn't actually do anything because he is the one that put the stumbling block. And so here God is saying, look, it's inevitable that we're going to sin. I, I've sent my, my son is, is here, you know, Jesus is talking. He's about to go to the cross to pay for the penalty for our sins because he understands like sin cannot be remedied on our own. We can't step out of it. We don't have a hope to clear ourselves from the sin that is in our lives unless Jesus intervenes through his death on the cross and the, the purchase that he makes by his blood. But he's saying, look, that's one thing. You're going to sin. Things are going to come. I'm not going to say it's okay, but I'm going to pay for it. However, woe to those who cause others to sin. And he doesn't say on purpose. He just says, woe to those who cause others to sin. What Jesus is addressing here is just how seriously God takes this, takes it when we cause others to stumble, right? And that's a really big deal to God. Preventing stumbling of others ought to be the top priority of all followers of Christ. And the, the basis for this whole thing, then, is that you have to, in order to not cause others to stumble, you in some ways have to care about them more than you care about yourself. Right? We, this can be kind of really hard but meet to, but one of the, the best places we see this fleshed out in Scripture is in some of the places where Paul teaches. And it's not a specific Scripture. This kind of comes up over and over again. But he talks about things like, like eating meat sacrificed to idols or unclean meats. Right? Like in, in the New Testament, Christians are free to eat unclean meats. However, there was a whole bunch of people who didn't believe that they could, and so when they watched another Christian do something that they are technically allowed to do, it, it put a stumbling block in their faith. And so what Paul was saying is, look, it, it's okay to eat this, but if you're around people who this is going to cause an issue for, you have to ask yourself, what matters more, my freedom to eat or my care and love of them and the nurture of their soul? Another place we see, him, we see it taught is with, with things like alcohol, right? Like there's, a, there's not a, a clear scriptural prohibition against drinking alcohol other than to drink it to excess, right? As long as we have a, a moderate consumption of alcohol that doesn't cause us to be of unclear mind and be drunk, like it's, it's okay in scripture to drink. But many, many Christians don't believe that. There's a whole host of Christians who believe that alcohol is, is wrong. It's sinful to consume. And so, or even on a practical side, there's a whole bunch of people for whom alcohol is a real problematic thing perhaps because of their, their own past or the past of a, a family member, it stirs things up in them that they need to stay away from. And so in that case, we have to ask ourselves the question. It might be okay to, to have a drink, but in certain circumstances, are we going to say, mm, I'm going to abstain from this. Even though I know that I'm free, I'm going to lay that freedom down in order to make sure that another doesn't stumble. Make sure that their walk and their faith is, is nurtured and upheld. I'm going to relinquish some of the, the freedoms that I enjoy because I care more about their sanctification than my own freedom and desires. Right? That's, that's kind of a, a meat on the bones. That's just two examples of thousands. But one of the things that he's saying is you, you, have, to, you have to make sure that your faith doesn't create a stumbling block for other people. Right? And so, you know, 
my wife and I enjoy a good glass of wine, or in my case, I'm a bourbon guy, I like bourbon, but I, I can tell you, like, if I know that there's some people who, who struggle, like, you're not gonna see that stuff when you come to my house, right? Or if I'm going out to lunch with them, right? There, there's certain people in my, in my life that I know that if I'm going out, I'm not gonna order a beer at the restaurant. Not because I think it's wrong or, or anything, just, but just because I don't, I don't want to create any kind of issues. I care more about their nurtured faith than I care about my own freedom. Right? And so that's a micro example, right? We're not talking about alcohol today. It's a micro example that puts meat to the command that we get in the opening verses of Luke 17. We cannot cause stumbling blocks for people. We have to love others above yourself. Maybe you have some Christians who have some really weird spiritual practices and habits, and you have a, very, you have a temptation to judge them. Right? And sometimes there's some things that are wrong that we need to, we need to judge or, or confront in, 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 in godly ways. But, but for the most part, like, is it more important that you get to get your judgment words in, or is it more important that you ensure that if that's, if that's how they are growing in Christ, well, I want to nurture that. I want to care about that. I don't want to condemn it. Right? If, if it helps them in their, their walk with Jesus. And so any freedom you have should die to that goal. It's more important that others around us don't stumble, that we don't put some kind of block in the way of their growth of their faith. It's, it's always more important that we consider that than our own personal freedoms. Right? That's, that's what he's saying here. So now the next section seems to be this entirely different topic. He gets into things like rebuke and, and forgiveness of things, right? but they are linked together. Right? The, the first verses talk about not causing others to stumble. The next set of verses talks about what, what do we do to help them when they do fall. Right? That's, that's the connection here when we look at verses 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is a, it's a hard set of verses, right? First, he tells us that rebuke can sometimes be needed, right? It's, it's actually part of what we do as Christians is we call out each other's wrongs. When you see a brother walking down a, a path they shouldn't go down, right? It's not the loving thing to, to just say, it's okay, or I'm, I support you, or I'm with you. Sometimes we have to say, look, you're not going in a direction that's good here. And I need, you to, I need you to know that. And if you're not going to hear it from me, then I need you to hear it from, from, from another brother or sister in the faith or, or some elders or, you know. That's, that's what church discipline is, right? It's not discipline like punishment. It's, it's trying to pull people back because we hold each other accountable as followers of Christ to walk in a way that, that would honor the Lord. Right? And so rebuke is, is necessary. And then he, he says we must forgive. We rebuke and we forgive. And that's the real hard one. And, and, and by the way, if you're wondering, for the Jewish audience of this time, for his disciples, that's the first verse that really would have gotten them. It's when he says, you know, if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns seven times saying, repent, I must forgive. Because there was this thing in Jewish culture, right, that, that was very, very specific when it came to forgiveness. This is, a, this is entrenched in, in Judaism, that you, you forgive a person, a family member, a relative, a business partner, you must forgive them three times. Three different times you have to forgive. And after that, if they continue to wrong you the fourth time, they're done. Cut them off. Right? 
Not about you. You've, uh, for those of you who've had people that significantly wrong you in the, the same ways over and over again, uh, part of it, that sounds like a pretty good rule. Right? We have variations of that rule in, in our society today, right? Three strikes, you're out. Right? Whether that's in, in baseball, in a silly sports kind of metaphor way, or in like there's actually laws, like there's three strikes laws right? in, in certain places in the, in the country. We, we, we think of it that way. But, but what Jesus here is saying is, look, look, um, you have to forgive. And they're like, yeah, we understand forgiving is really important. It's, it's part of our culture. We forgive with no questions asked three times. And he's like, no, no, no. Um, even, even if a brother comes and sins against you seven times in like a single day, but says repent, I repent. You must forgive him. So that's an entirely different way of thinking about forgiveness, right? It requires them to fundamentally think about the way that they consider relationships. And in many ways, it, ha- it means that they have to lay down a whole element of their culture, like the honor-shame culture. They don't get to shame a person who has wronged them fourth, fifth, sixth, sixtieth time. They are to continue to offer forgiveness. And that's where life gets hard. Because every one of us has people who we really don't want to forgive. Right? They know, they know that this is a huge ask of Jesus. Not even ask, but a command. Right? Woe to those who are stumbling blocks. And, and when a brother wrongs you, you rebuke, you pull him back, and you and then you forgive. You don't you don't hold that against them. You don't hold grudges. You don't harbor anger and and resentment. You, you must forgive freely. Well, well, surely there's some limit to how many times I have to forgive. No, there's no limit. Right? The seven times in a day isn't like a, a hard number. It's, it's kind of a, seven is a number of completeness in Scripture. And so the, the, the idea is that you forgive them completely, constantly, all the time, without fail, over and over and over. What if they wrong me every day in a significant way? Well, then every day you've got some forgiven to do. Right? There's no bounds put on it in this text by Jesus. And so they know how hard of a, of a command this is. And so when we look at the next set of verses in 5 and 6, they respond by, by asking Jesus for help in the best way that they know how. They say, okay, well, if that's something that I need to do, Lord, you need to increase our faith. If, if we're going to forgive in, in that radical of a way, we, you, need to incre- you need to increase our faith. Otherwise, it, it ain't happening. You don't know what so-and-so has done to me. You don't know, when, when you say you must forgive them, you don't know what that means, what kind of toil that requires emotionally on my part to lay down the ways in which they have wronged me, or even worse, they have wronged one of my loved ones. Right? I can forgive you if you mess with me. You mess with my kids, I'm taking you down. Right? Like that, or my wife. Like that's, a, that's a whole different level. Right? Like There's an anger that I will harbor against you, and Jesus says, no, 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 even that. You just forgive, and they say, yeah, I don't know about that. If we're going to do that, we're going to need some more faith. So bring on, bring on the faith. We're ready. Pour it out. Here I am, Lord. Bring it to me. Right? And his reply is, is kind of a, a telling thing about what he, what, he, what he thinks here. So they ask for a greater amount of faith. And I think the problem is that we, we think of faith in terms of an amount a lot, don't we? Like for us to do things that the Lord requires of us, whether it's forgiveness or you know, an increase in our giving or a laying down of something or a trusting him with something, we think, well, I, I have enough faith for, for this level of Christian life, but if he's going to ask this of me, I need more faith. Right? We, we like to think of faith in terms of this thing that has a quantity to it. Some have more faith than others. Some have less faith than others. 
And Jesus here kind of, he kind of squelches that a little bit, right? So like for most of us in this room, hopefully all of us, but I'm not going to presume, we have enough faith that we trust that, that Christ died for us on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, right? For the most part, you know, some of us have doubts and we, we wonder about losing our salvation, which you can't, but, but that's fair. But for most of us, we believe that when we die, we will spend eternity with Christ in heaven because we trust that his work on the cross was sufficient. It covers our sins like he promises. And most of us expect that when we breathe our last, we're going we're gonna to open our eyes and be with Jesus. We trust that, right? But there's some areas of life where our faith all of a sudden seems to not be that strong. You know, maybe you have a loved one with illness and you're wondering, like, how can this possibly, how can I have faith that, the, that they're going to be okay in this regard or financial troubles and you struggle to trust, have faith that the Lord will provide for you if you give sacrificially, right? We, we, we like to compartmentalize faith. We trust God in some ways, but then not in others. And it's, it's funny that we trust the God of the universe who died for our sins to have secured eternal life, but we don't trust him with something like a budget. There's, do you ever think that's weird? Like most of us trust God with our eternity, but not that he's powerful enough to manage our budget for us if, if we do some sacrificial things or our calendar or our time. That somehow we won't, if we, if we commit to this time-consuming thing or person that the Lord is calling us to, to minister to and to love and to care for, that somehow we, will, we won't have enough time to get our work done. Jesus can manage our eternity, but not our calendars. Seems silly when you kind of put it in that perspective, doesn't it? Right? So Jesus' response here addresses this kind of faith disparity. He kind, of, he kind of gets at them with this faith quantity way of, of thinking. He says to them, you know, when we get to verse uh, 6, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. That's a big statement. Most of us have used the phrase faith like a mustard seed, right? If even, even the smallest amount of genuine faith could move mountains or, or those kinds of things. But here's what, what Jesus is doing. There's a whole bunch of metaphor going on in here that, that extends to this passage and then into the things like forgiveness. Number one, a mustard seed is the smallest of seeds, right? And so when Jesus says faith like a mustard seed, he's saying, look, faith is not about quantity, the, the, the smallest mustard seeds, mustard seed size amount, amount of, of faith, if you actually had that, even the littlest, teensiest bit, you could, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted. Not even you could pull it out, you'd have strength, but you could speak things into happening, the way that God spoke the world into, into being. You could speak this mulberry tree to uproot and go and plant itself in the sea, and it would obey you. So the, the, on the faith side, he's saying, look, tiniest amount, really no amount, right? If you had faith at all, you could do this thing. And on the other side, the mulberry tree is, is interesting because it's known to be the tree with the deepest roots in that region at that time. Right? It's the hardest tree to move. If your neighbor called you and said, hey, I've got a mulberry tree that I need to take down, you, you come up with the reason why you can't help that day. Because that's going to be a sucky day for you. You are not going to want to spend the day uprooting. Ever have somebody come like, I, just, I have this bush that I need to get out of my yard. You can come help me. Right. I had a, a, a friend of mine who was a former, a former pastor ask if I could help him pull this bush out of the front yard. And it looked small. I remembered what he was, I knew the bush he was talking about. I was like, oh, I'll come over. And I brought you know, some tools. And, and two hours later, we're at the point where we're attaching chains to the hitch of his car 
to try to get this thing out, and, and the chain broke, right? Like, it's that kind of a that you're not going to want to pull out a mulberry tree. And so he's saying the smallest insignificant amount of, of actual genuine faith could actually accomplish the, the uprooting of that which cannot be uprooted. And so if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could, you could do that. If you truly trusted God at all, you could do the undoable. And I think the, the mulberry tree is, is metaphorical not just for the, how hard it would be to accomplish, but, but for another reason. I think the rooted language applies to our own personal struggles of forgiveness sometimes. Because I think for, for us as, as followers of Christ who, who are sinners, all of us, right? We acknowledge ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God. I think forgiveness is one of the hardest things to do in this world. I think the, 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 the root in this, kind of the, the desire for, for, for vengeance, for justice, for fairness, for, for them to get what they deserve, right? That, that kind of, that, that, that harboring of things, I think that's so deeply rooted within us that it's almost impossible to pull out. I think there are thousands of, of things we do and ways we think and behaviors that run counter to God's word. There's thousands of them that we could easily change far more easier than uprooting unforgiving hearts in our midst. If you're somebody that remotely struggles with unforgiveness, you know what I'm talking about. Like, it, it is not easy. It might even be easy to say I forgive, but like to actually really do it, right? You still go home that day and you realize, I don't know if I really meant that or not. Like, there's a part of me that just, just holds on, right? And so when, think of the kind of, for many of us, this forgiveness is, is so hard to be clear. When I, when I say forgive, before we get any further, what I'm not saying is to forget. Right? And I think that's one of the keys when we, when we look at Jesus' command to forgive. Jesus doesn't command us to be naive in this. Jesus isn't saying you have to just pretend it didn't happen and, and for you to forgive that person kind of goes, goes the, the realm of you just pretending like it never happened and you restore the relationship to exactly how it was before. That's not, that's not forgiveness scripturally. Right? You can forgive but be smart still without sinfulness, right? If someone continues to, like, steal money from you, you, you can forgive them for their theft, but you can stop giving them money, <laughs> right? You don't have to act like it never happened. There's a, there's a prudence to things. There, there are people in my life who, who I've, I've forgiven deeply, but I, I hold them at a, at a further bay than I did before. They don't get to have the, the influence, the presence that they once did, right? I don't harbor resentment towards them. I love them. I will spend time with them, but man, their opinion will probably matter a little less in my life than it did before. Their advice will be taken with a slightly more uh, thoughtful process than it had before, right? Maybe somebody I trusted blindly, I'm, I'm thinking about it now when they come at me with something. It's just, it's just caution. It's not, a, it's not a resentment. It's not an angry thing. It's, they're, they're, for, they're forgiven, but there's a prudence that comes as part of that. What I'm talking about with forgiveness is, is the letting go of, of that anger and that resentment and that bitterness that we hold towards a person. When you look at them, how are you looking at them? Are you looking at them as the wronger of you? the person who has wronged you? Or are you looking at them as a, a child of God that lives under the same grace as you do? Right? And so this, this forgiveness piece is, is very specific. It's, it's not a blind turning away. right? Because God doesn't do that with us either. God doesn't ignore our sin. Right? 
We talk about washing away of sin and we are, we are clean. When we, when we breathe our last and stand before the Lord, we still stand in judgment, right? It's not that he goes, oh, here you are, sinless person. Thank you, Jesus, right? He's saying, here you are, person who's worthy of death. And Christ comes in and says, no, I paid for him. The death that he deserves, I, I bought it. He's, he's debtless. Come on in, right? But, but God doesn't forget the things that we have done to wrong him. He forgives. Right? We also aren't called to forget. Right? I, but I'm, I think unforgiveness, honestly, and I think why Jesus is so passionately against it in, the, in this passage, unforgiveness, I think, is, is one of the, the most unchristian behaviors and mindsets that we can have. Right? We, the gospel of our Lord Christ is built upon the forgiveness of of sins, and so whatever resentment we hold for other people, you've been forgiven of more. Even if a person has wronged you in ways that you could say, well, I've never wronged anybody like that, you still have offended a holy God, right? And the offenses that you've committed to God are exponentially worse than the offenses that they've committed to, to you, another fallible being. And so whatever somebody has done to you that you can't let go of, you can trust in the fact that if you are a follower of Christ, Jesus has forgiven you of more, of worse, right? And I think Jesus knows that unforgiveness is something that is just really deep within us and hard to uproot. And so he says, with the smallest amount of faith, it can be possible to do, to uproot the thing which is so unuprootable, right? And so you don't need much faith. You have to have faith at all. If you have any kind of faith at all, you will forgive and you'll do it freely. You'll cast these, these deeply rooted resentments into the waters and you'll, you'll be free. Because faith is not about amount. It's not a quantitative thing. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he can secure your eternity, well, then you ought to believe that Jesus can secure something like a relationship as well. And you ought to believe that if you let go of your need for vengeance or justice or, or punishment or whatever it is that you want that person to go through and that bitterness and resentment, you ought to believe, if you, if you trust God with your eternity, you ought to trust him with the fact that he can figure that out. That you, can, you can let it go, and you can let God handle whatever needs to be handled. Right? If he can do the large, then he can do the small. You don't need much faith, and, and you do it by following the example of, of the Lord. I have, he says, I've forgiven you of so much, and the price you pay is that you have to pass it on. It's just part of what defines you as a Christian. Christians are radical forgivers. It's part of who you are. To not be a forgiver is to, to not fully live into the, the identity of a Christian. It's not a suggestion biblically. It's a foundational thing to following Jesus. You just have to do it. Right? And so Jesus concludes with these kind of set of three questions about servants that he gets into that kind of seem odd. And I'll give you a cheat sheet before we ever ask the questions. The answers are no, yes, no. Right. After they, 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 you know, he asks about this treatment of your servants and how we ought to think about them. And so the, the first thing he asks is, you know, after they come in from the field, do you serve them dinner? Well, no. Do you tell them, take a seat, you've worked so hard doing the things that are your job? No. Right. When you go to work and you do your job, you know, do you have a boss that's just constantly like, I got it, boy. No, you just, it's expected of you. You do your job. Maybe you go above and beyond and, and you, you get a pat on the back, but you just do your job. Right? 
It's what you were hired to do. It's what you're paid to do. You come in, you do it, you go home, you don't complain, right? He's saying, so, so no, you wouldn't invite your servant to recline. Instead, you know, what, what would you do? Would you, would you tell them to cook dinner and, and have you eat, and then after you've been taken care of as the, the master, then the servant eats? Well, yeah, that's what you would do, right? And then do, do we lavish some high degree of thanks on them for doing their duty? No, right? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? No. And so he's saying, you, you function in the, the same way, right? He tells them that so too they should, when having completed their duty, not look for some grand special thanks and consider themselves instead to be unworthy in having done their job. What he's essentially saying here is if, if you begin to stop stumbling others and you forgive, um, don't ask for a cookie, right? It's, it's not some special request that God makes that you'll get this special thanks. It's not this above and beyond thing that God is asking of us that, you know, you might start to puff yourself up. You're like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you might leave today and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive these people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray that, that, that my faith would allow me, that the Lord would, would empower me to forgive, and I'm going to let go of these things, right? And, and then afterwards you might be like, you know, yeah, I'm a better Christian now. Look how much I've grown, Right? And, and what Jesus is saying with these kind of questions at the end, he's saying, look, if you do these things that I've commanded, by the way, don't think of yourself as some really special person here. Um, these things are basic foundational things that make you a Christian. Like, a Christian is a person who, who rebukes when necessary and forgives relentlessly. That's what a Christian is. So when you do these things, don't look for some special recognition or pat on the back. What you've done is your very basic duty and job as a Christian. This is so central to who we are in, within our identity in Christ that, that Jesus makes really sure to, to have us understand that it's just, it's just expected behavior. Right? This isn't some major request. We're not star-spangled awesome for having forgiven people. We're not better than them. We're not better than another Christian. This is the very... He's, like, he's saying, essentially, if you forgive... God, listen, you see what I've done for you on the cross or what I'm about to go do for you on the cross? Like, forgiving is the least you can do. For us, it seems like the hardest thing in the world. For Jesus, it's the basic expectation of all Christians. Right? That's, that's what he's saying. It's the foundation of the Christian faith. And so when you forgive like that, you are simply being a Christian at the most foundational level. It's your basic duty. And he's not trying to be mean here. He's just trying to drive home just how central to the Christian faith forgiveness is. They go hand in hand. They are one and the same thing. To be a Christian is to forgive. And why? Because forgiveness is the foundation of our own faith and salvation. You are saved because Christ forgave you. You can't then go and not forgive others. I feel like there's a parable in here about that somewhere, right? <laughs> Amen. You're saved because God loved you so much that he gave his own freedoms for the sake of your sins. And so you also must give of your own freedoms and desires and preferences in order that others might grow in faith. And through your radical forgiveness, they will see what the forgiveness of Christ can look like in their own lives. It's one of the best ways that we have of evangelizing is we forgive when it makes no sense. You want to catch a non-Christian off guard? Forgive them for something that the world would say is unforgivable and watch what happens. Right? They're bound to have some questions. And we have some pretty great answers to those, don't we? Amen?
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. First and foremost, Lord, we thank you that you forgive us. Every one of us knows the ways in which we have fallen short of your holiness and your glory. We know that we don't deserve to to be even so much as near your presence, but Lord, you forgive us. You sacrifice your son in order to reconcile us back to you. You give up so much of yourself in order to redeem us for no reason other than you, you love us and you want your holiness to be on display. And so, Lord, we, uh, this morning in the room, we, we take a moment and we, we put in front of ourselves the face or faces of, of, of a person or people that, that we are harboring resentment towards, that we're struggling to forgive. And we remember the command to do so as central to who we are as a Christian. We remember that you call us to say, if we are in Christ, that person must be forgiven. It's not a choice, it's not an option, it's not a hopeful, it's a command. And so we pray that by your power we might be able to to forgive them before we even walk out of this room today. We understand that some of the people that are in in our mind right now are people that have wronged us in some really deeply offensive and rotten ways. We know that. And we, we don't want to belittle that. We don't, want to, we don't want to say that that's insignificant or that the pain that they have caused is, is irrelevant. It isn't. But Lord, the, the, the call is that nonetheless we forgive because we've been forgiven of much. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might be able to offer that resentment and that pain and that bitterness and that anger up to you and, and to, to leave it in this room when we walk out. And that even beyond that, if they're still alive or around, that we might have the strength to to connect with them and to proclaim that forgiveness over them, to give us wisdom in those conversations. But we pray that that as a result of of the word of yours that we've heard today, that we would come back next week with, with dozens of stories of reconciliations and share those amongst ourselves so that we might be encouraged that our forgiveness would echo yours in this world. Equip us to do that immensely hard thing. Empower us. Help us to have people come alongside of us to counsel us in that way if we need to because it's just so hard. Some of us have been wronged in just egregious ways that that carry an unfathomable amount of pain. And Lord, only you are able to uproot something like that. So we pray that you would do that in our hearts and minds this morning and in the days and weeks to come. We love you, and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen. Amen.